netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. As I mentioned in our last episode, I thought you'd really look forward to this episode. And now I can divulge who it is. Our guests this week are Paul Dubovic. He's Director of Research, Creative Algorithms, and Technology at Netflix, as well as being involved in the University of Southern California's Institute for Creative Technology, as well as Eric Winquist, who's a VFX supervisor at Weta Digital. Conversation this week is centered around the idea of using image-based lighting to create accurate lighting on a virtual production LED screen set. Now, of course, you can have LED screens behind the actors, which provide the background, but also LED screens can provide interactive lighting as well for the scene. Now, this conversation is uh, a bit in reference to a talk at the recently concluded VIEW conference in Italy where Paul gave the presentation. I just want to mention that because if you want to see that full presentation, it's available as part of the VIEW conference's on-demand program, his presentation as well as many others. So be sure to check that out. We'll have a link in the article for the FX podcast, the FX guide. I really actually recommend checking that out and all the other presentations from the conference. But I'm going to keep this introduction short because I think they do a really nice job of explaining the whole um, idea behind this test and the pitfalls and successes. And again, it's just a really fun discussion. So let's go ahead and cross to that now. It's Mike Seymour chatting with Paul Debevic and Eric Winquist. So I'm joined by uh, Eric and Paul. Eric, how are you? I'm just fine. And uh, slightly ahead of me in New Zealand. Yeah, I think I've got an airplane landing out the window there. Let me close there that go. window. And, uh, and Paul, you're slightly behind me uh, in terms of uh, time zones, but, uh, but always in front of me in terms of technology. <laughs> well, it's good to be here uh, again. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be in the, in, in the same time zone, not too far off. So the thing that we were keen to discuss is these issues around uh, getting um, faithful reproduction of lighting inside light stages. And to that end, um, we're going to discuss a couple of things. Like one of the things is you guys did a test on using um, or basically sampling uh, light at two locations and then taking that uh, in the form of an IBL into a light, uh, into a LED volume and uh, and seeing how faithful that came. And then the second thing I'd like to discuss is is that even a good idea in the first place? So, so let's start with the uh, the experiment, Paul. Maybe you could quickly outline. Uh, I think it was actually actually I should say this, Eric. Was this your idea on an airplane flight that I remember, or was it Paul's idea? Uh, the the thing I was the airplane flight was uh, that was just kind of conceiving this the video oh. that we were talking about yesterday. Okay. Yeah. So, Paul, it must have been your idea to do this uh, test. Well, I was I was happy to get to be invited to to join this uh, USC Entertainment Technology Center uh, working group on virtual production, which were some amazing discussions on on kind of a monthly Zoom call, and uh, they had published a nice white paper on their uh, virtual production experimental project called Ripple Effect, and we're starting some new things up, but also kind of looking for new initiatives. And one of the things that I thought would be worth looking at is how well, you know, one of the, you know, kind of like, you know, production class, uh, you know, kind of LED volume light stagey things uh, would be just out of the box at doing lighting reproduction, because essentially, you know, the LED panels in one of these systems gets used for, you know, three purposes, right? One of them 
uh, in-camera backgrounds. Um, there's the, uh, the the nice effect of like the actors can kind of see what's around them. The crew can see what's the scene is supposed to look like, which is helpful. Um, but has been noted, you know, since the beginning uh, is that there's a big interest in uh, the illumination that they provide, that there's more realistic lighting. And if the light of the scene is what's lighting the actors um, is consistent, then the composites are going to look a, a lot more realistic. And uh, Gravity, which you know we helped out in the R&D stages of, uh, is the first film to use LED panels in a big way um, for kind of virtual sets around the actors. And those were specifically done for lighting. And that was before they were really high enough resolution to be used in a big way for, for in-camera backgrounds. And so now that there's been a lot of focus on trying to get the pixel pitch and the design of the stages to work well for in-camera backgrounds and a continuing interest in the lighting, it's like, well, let's evaluate how well the lighting works or how you can get it to work well. So I guess I would say that if you took um, the terrific work of Gravity and, um, and then moved the, the clock forward, what Gravity did was great. But since then, and you articulated this very well, there's actually two aspects to this in terms of the LED stages, right? Like, and one is, well, is the, are the pixels kind of close enough together that they produce what is effectively a, a uniform picture that I can get an in-camera effect? And for that, you need certain properties of LEDs, like they're really close together. And then the other stage is, um, well, if I could get really faithful reproduction of light, which your light stages have been, you know, absolutely the forefront of, but then the problem there is the pitch is like in inches, not in millimeters, because you need a whole lot of different LEDs to get it. So whereas I'm not taking anything away from gravity, but gravity had like both problems, right? Like it couldn't shoot in-camera effects because the, the pixels weren't close enough together to get an in-camera, but also it wasn't perfect reproduction of light because it didn't have any kind of spectral response. So we're now in that world that we have two choices. At the moment, it feels like I could either favor in-camera or favor a more faithful reproduction of light. And, and you're wondering, well, how close we are to getting those two to combining. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, absolutely. And also with the realization that uh, getting these two things right at the same time, it kind of puts the LED panel design a bit across purposes. So the density of the LED panels, um, you know, has to be a certain amount for, for, for in-camera backgrounds or you get the, the moiré effects. That's the, that's the main thing. For lighting stuff, you know, we found in, in light stage three that your lights can be 15 degrees apart and it still lights a human face fine unless you're zoomed in on the eyes. But it and wouldn't light a carb on it because you'd see no. the structure, right? All different things. It turns yeah. out, speaking of things that can possibly have a high dynamic range, the, the the glossiness of a surface is definitely a high dynamic range value, as in there is a, a massive difference between something that is a, a flat, perfectly specular mirror and a diffuse ball. There's like six orders of magnitude of meaningful difference between how those two things reflect light. And, um, you know, when... You know, Digital Domain asked us in 2004 if they could use our, our Light Stage 3 system to light uh, Brad Pitt's face for a test they wanted to do for Benjamin Button uh, and be zoomed in on the eyes. Like, we'd already done the tests of how eyes look in Light Stage 3. You see lots of individual dots. And that's that's the first time that I, you know, called people up and asked if we could build a, an LED wall to do the image-based lighting instead. And we showed that even at the time in 2004, uh, with, I believe it was um, 
even nine millimeter pitch. If you're two meters away and you're doing like a you know, medium close-up of a face, eyes look fine because of the, the, the strong convexity. But the, the, the hood of a car is a lot flatter. And so it's not going to squeeze the lights together. And that's a, that's a really tough case. It might even be a good case for CGI cars. <laughs> Eric, let me ask you this. Do you feel like if there was a sort of a generalization that could be made about interest in the LED volumes, is it more because they want the lighting to be good or they more want to be able to get in-camera effects and the side benefit of the actors, of course, you know, having something to look at for highlines? I would say it feels like the 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 predominant uh, desire to use that is is almost more around the in-camera aspect of it, more so than the illumination. Because the, the thing you often find is when you you go into these scenarios, it's never well. In most lighting scenarios, you're going to come across uh, unless you're shooting your entire movie at dusk, which strangely enough, the Mandalorian you know does feature a lot of that kind <laughs> of time of day. Uh, you're you're bringing you're going to need to bring in additional fixtures to to illuminate and at that point now you've got the ability to bring in more high quality illumination and that, that is more broad spectrum that can give you color reproduction that that makes things look you know skin tones and and and, and costume look more natural um so you kind of right now at least we're needing to sort of leverage both of those technologies in in a volume stage to kind of get the best result you're getting you're getting both the really high pitch pixels in camera and you're getting the higher quality illumination sort of from the camera side um, on your actors. The reflection aspect is still potentially a problem. I mean, we did a test here last year with a uh, an airplane cockpit that had a lot of sort of bubbled uh, perspex glass or windows. And it was amazing how even though the what the camera was shooting through the window looked fine, uh, you'd have these areas where you could actually see that pitch, you know, see a bunch of dots because of the sort of convex nature of, of those perspex domes. And that was an unexpected thing that we, uh, we kind of had to shoot around. So before we go any further on the LED stage, I think it's worth establishing how seriously Weta takes spectral rendering. Can you just like touch on that? Because like the whole basis of your pipeline, and I mean the pipeline, not just the renderer, is on having good color science from understanding what's happening at the CMOS level right through to, uh, to actually having um, uh, Manuka as a spectral renderer. Yeah, so we're, we basically profile the entire image pipeline. So the, uh, the, the cameras that shot motion picture photography on the day um, that we're sort of integrating our CG with, uh, we've profiled the spectral sensitivity of those cameras. Uh, we're sort of getting to a point where we're even about to be profiling the optics that are in the image path there. Uh, that are because that's of course throwing its own uh, skew spectrally, um, but then also the illuminants themselves. We're taking typically spectral measurements of fixtures that are being used on the set, so we know what the actual luminant spectral emission is, uh, and then we're throwing all that all in a mix. And the renderer Manuka is instead of just you know tracing or, or path tracing red, green, blue, it's actually just randomly sampling wavelengths across the entire visible spectrum as it goes. And so we're building a complete spectral picture of the scene that integrates then really tightly with the what the camera actually produced or how the camera saw the world. And Paul, I remember when you and I were, uh, I was a guest at uh, ICT and you were doing the first tests on, um, on trying to get the light stage itself to have uh, a different spectral profile. And we were doing a sort of early, early spectral tests on that. But I was going to get you to comment on this because it's something that uh, you mentioned in the talk that you gave at VIEW, which is to your eye on set, 
you know, these LEDs are producing mice-like light. But Paul, when you look at them as a as an actual um, uh, wavelength distribution, you're getting these incredible spikes, and that's that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because it's not uh, registering with the same uh, quality that we'd like in terms of skin tone reproduction because the LED combination of LEDs, I should say, is not producing a, a similar spectral response. Yeah, and this is, I think, actually the principal way that using LEDs for in-camera backgrounds and using them for illumination, which we're trying to do both, um, are, are across purposes a bit. Because if, if you're trying to create a great display, and that's really LED panels were designed as displays, um, we know quite well from the color science that you can produce all the colors a person can see, not quite all of them, but a very, very satisfactory set of them, uh, with you know three relatively saturated color primaries, and that's what the red, green, and blue LEDs do inside these panels. Um, they even put the red and the green spectra quite far apart in the rainbow because that actually maximizes the uh, you know the size of that triangle on the CIE color space that that you, that you carve out. But it leaves this gaping chasm of missing light in the yellow region, and uh, you surprisingly don't need that to show the color yellow to a person. Um, you turn on the red and the green LEDs um, and it excites your long and medium wavelength cones pretty much the same way as turning on you know, a yellow chunk of spectrum. That's just an artifact of the human visual system. And then we've largely designed our cameras to, uh, to, to, to generally speaking kind of follow that. But the problem is when you're expecting this stuff to light something, um, suppose you have a material that tends to reflect light in the yellow area of the spectrum and not anywhere else. Then if you light that with a so-called yellow color made with our LED panels, which don't actually have any yellow light in it, that material will look quite dark, much darker than it would look under daylight or incandescent light or any broad spectrum solid state lighting that you might have from a high quality light source. And because of that uh, effect, um, not everything is like dramatic, like it's between bright and dark, but colors shift a lot, kind of unexpectedly. And one of the most notable things that you'll, you'll notice almost instantly on one of these, um, you know, LED stages is that skin tones shift uh, toward red and pink. So darker skin tones tend to shift toward red, uh, lighter skin tones tend to shift toward pink in ways that, you know, a white t-shirt doesn't. And so now the color correction matrix you need to get white to look white on white t-shirts and white squares of color checker charts, um, which is also the same color matrix you need for in-camera backgrounds to look correct, is not going to make skin tones look correct. Skin's gonna look notably off. It actually tends to look worse to the human eye than it does in most cameras actually. Um, but neither of these is a, is, a, is a good situation. And that's something that you know, we definitely wanna to try to look at in the future. Eric, we're going to lose you in a second because you've got to go to a client um, meeting. Yeah. But the other thing that we need to just quickly get from you before we lose you is that was that, that discussion we just had, of course, is all about color in terms of like, you know, having a, a wide gamut and all that kind of stuff. But <clears throat> the main thing from the IBL is that it sort of came from this world of being able to produce very high dynamic range. And I just wanted to get your comment on that. Like one of the things that you really rely on in a wetter pipeline is having accurate uh, dynamic range so you actually understand the intensity of light that's coming from every direction independent of obviously its color 
Yeah, um, certainly that's that's hugely important for recreating lighting in CG because we need that and we need all the intensity of the light that was there. Having an IBL that that was saturated when or, or clipped, let's say when when the photographs were taken to make that IBL from, uh, now we're missing a bunch of the energy, say, from the sun. Uh, is, is the common example. Um, as it turns out, I think as, as, as the ETC experiment um, that Paul touches on in the view uh, talk showed, you know, the, the LED wall, um, the max amount of light that, that these panels can put out is, is, is a far cry from you know, what we see in the real world. So it's uh, to some degree less important to get that entire dynamic range um, in this context, because we can't reproduce all of that light, no matter what, um, and that's where. But 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 it, you know, the thing that was very helpful with this test was at least we had a ground truth of how a synthetic, say, gray ball should look uh, from that from the energy that was captured on the day. You know, we can compare. You know, both validate that the the IBL that we shot on that location matched the physical ball that was there that we, you know, so we can compare those two and say, yeah, great, this, this IBL is legit and it produces the correct results. So now that when we put this on the wall, does, do we do, how far off the mark are we? And that, that's where the, uh, you know, I was referring to it as the car park test um, when, we, when we did our test last year here at Weta um, is, is doing the same kind of example uh, of shooting an image outside, putting that on the wall and trying to reproduce those two looks and, and seeing how far off the mark we were. But, but let me ask you this, if somebody's listening to this, they might be saying, hang on a second, when I've read about these LED volumes, they say they're not running the LED panels at the maximum output, they've got them wound right down. So how come I can't like just turn up the LED panels if, if apparently, you know, you're not getting a bright enough light? Like, why, why is that a problem? Why am I hearing that I'm also got the panels running at 19%? And you're saying that we need like, you know, more dynamic range? Uh, well, I would say that like even the, the sort of top spec panels uh, that, that are out there, I think what was in the stage that was, that test was shot with, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the max that the ceiling panels, which were, I think, a, 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 a coarser pitch panel, uh, I think they were able to get to what, 4,000 nits? The, the ceiling panels actually were able to go up to 5,000 uh, nits or candelas per meter squared. I think the yeah. walls were like 1,300. We were, we were running the wall close to the, the, the maximum that they were supposed to. But the, the ceiling, to, to use things quickly, we had two choices. We either just artificially uh, increase the brightness of everything that happens to end up on the ceiling versus the walls and use the ceiling's range that way. But that would just be nonsense in terms of reproducing the lighting. There's no reason why things should just all of a sudden get brighter because they're they're up in the sky. Um, and the choice that we, we did make is we actually limited the ceiling to only do the, the range of brightness basically that the walls could do so that things would be displayed consistently. And apparently in just released versions of Unreal Engine, and if we had time to, to test this out, you can actually have separate display profiles so that every component of your LED wall system can display as much dynamic range of the scene as, as, as it's able to and all in proper proportion to each other, which would definitely be the best way to go for that. It would, it would help, but, but still, uh, even at that max, say 5,000 nits, if that's what the ceiling could hit, that's still a far cry from what the sun actually should have been. And so either way, you're, you're having to augment to get that kind of light level. And, and the second point I just wanted to quickly touch on, Eric, is that this isn't, um, if people don't, you know, haven't tried this, this isn't something that's easy to grade out. 
It's not like Weta has a 3D LUT that can recover the color information if the LEDs are off or, or somehow just magically scale up the highlights. This is not a, an, a, a problem that can be solved in post, as it were. No, not really. I think uh, the thing you'll, you'll find either because of the, the poor spectral reproduction uh, of the emission source, um, either you're, you're having to do a bunch of secondary corrections in the DI trying to isolate skin tones and remove some of that magenta from those, those areas, um, or go in and, and try and via keying or rotoing. It becomes a complicated problem to, um, to solve. So I, I think we're going to lose really you, sorry, but thank you so much for yeah. your time, Eric. And uh, Thanks, Paul and I will, uh, will continue. And Paul, I think I just cut you off then. Uh, you were about to say something. Yeah, well, it was, uh, you know, essentially in terms of the design of the of test, um, you know, we, we intentionally took like two interior environments, one where like there's kind of light from the windows coming from the front, one where there's light coming from the side, and then two exterior environments, one in indirect light, you know, the kind of in the shadow of a building outside, and then one where we stood in direct sunlight. And we knew that our most challenging scene was gonna be that direct sunlight scene. Uh, you know, we've seen in our work uh, over the years that uh, recording, you know, light probes in the sun is challenging because uh, the sun is, you know, it's, it's, it's basically about 16 stops higher than the sky around it. And it, as in like a factor of 50,000-ish. Um, and not only is that, you know, way more dynamic range that's easy to cover in, a, in an exposure series. Also, just this absolute brightness is that cameras are not designed to get that in range. Like the human eye is also not designed to get that in, in range. We have pain mechanisms to keep us from looking at the sun. And, um, you know, we've, we've looked at actually, you know, it would be desirable to recover that. Um, we've done it two ways historically in our IBL work, one of which is you know, give up on getting the, the sun to come into the range of your exposure series, just realize it's going to saturate in the highest exposure, but also shoot a diffuse ball with, you know, known paint on it, like 30% reflective, 18% reflective, and then just a little bit of um, linear algebra, and you can reconstruct what intensity those sun pixels needed to be so that the IBL you get with it lights the diffuse ball to look the way that the diffuse ball actually looked. So that's, that's not too hard to follow through with. And the other way that we did it eventually was to actually use a, a thousand X neutral density filter to get the sun to finally not saturate in that ISO 100 eight thousandth of a second uh, F16 uh, image that we get with a thousand X ND. So we're going to do a separate thing on the pipeline for getting a good IBL because that is something that is just great if people know how to do, and it's so valuable. Um, but let's assume for a second that you have gone out there with a, a, a professional setup or a semi-professional setup, and you've managed to do multiple different angles, multiple different exposures, and accommodated for the sun with filters. And you've ended up with a, um, an IBL, which is basically a sample of the energy coming to a point on the set. And of course, it's recording uh, color information as well. And you basically can stitch that together and turn that into a 360 degree or a spherical um, HDR that you can use and feed into um, a light stage. And so the, the light stage works really well because the light stage um, has got all this sort of spectral response up and also it's a sphere and also, you know, it's a very uh, precise uh, piece of research that you've done over many years. Now we shift that to not putting it into a light stage 
but putting it into a LED volume. In other words, the kind of Mandalorian-y kind of round thing. And I think it's safe to say that you discovered um, a series of issues and interesting areas about doing that. And so without like going into like excruciating detail, like what would you say were the top sort of three or four lessons from seeing whether you could just take that IBL and effectively feed it out to all of the uh, panels in your uh, volume and then photograph somebody in it and theoretically have them lit like they were when you sampled that IBL back at uh, the original source. Yeah, and that was exactly the point of the uh, experiment. And uh, we were we were very happy to you know be able to shoot our real actors in the real environments at uh, Riot Studios and to have um, all of our, our HDRI raw files. You know, actually went down to Weta. Eric uh, personally assembled the HDRs uh, in, in himself. Uh, so uh, just as if we were a, a Peter Jackson production going on, uh, and um, and we brought them to the to the volume. Uh, we honestly weren't expecting that things would work right out of the box, but the, the point was to like call attention to where the pain points are and then also look at what can be done to get a good result anyway, or hopefully get the right result, even if you have to tweak some stuff that might be uh, a bit unintuitive. And the first thing that we found when we went to our very first environment uh, is that um, if you're missing uh, light coming from important parts of the scene, then just the appearance of the actors is just off immediately. And that first environment had the actors kind of facing to the windows of, of, of the library room at Riot. And uh, that's where the lighting was coming from. As it just turns out the way that that by default went into the, into the stage, the part that's open on the stage where you roll the cameras in uh, was exactly where those windows were. And so, so just to be clear, when they were facing the camera, that meant that the windows you're referring to are right behind the camera. So in fact, uh, you can imagine a straight line, windows, camera, actors. And when you went to the LED stage, instead of being windows, camera, actors, you had big gaping hole where the crew could stand, camera, actors, hence no light coming from gaping hole. Yeah, absolutely. There was no light. And the appearance on the actors was just wrong. They're, they're, they were too dark relative to the, to the background. The, the, the virtual background looked fine behind them. Um, but just the lighting was, was basically com com completely off. That was a, a first order correction. And I actually did just a little test in the diffuse light of my backyard where I, I recorded some actors with and without like a, a, a black backdrop behind the camera that just covered the like um, a 45 degree cone of lighting directions. And the appearance with and without that black backdrop simulating that missing area of the LED stage was very significant. And usually this is left open for convenience, so you can roll equipment in and out, so people can walk up and approach. Uh, and another thing is, is for audio as well, to avoid sound reflections, yeah. because these are amazing they echoes. Bounce. And if you enclose people, like the sound stays alive for a long time, and you can't record audio anymore. So there's a problem. So the first thing we realized is, you know what, if, if we're going to try to get lighting right, we have to start using the LEDs that we do have in the stage for the lighting directions that are important. And we turned our whole setup 180 degrees around and instead of LED panels behind the actors now, because now they're standing in front of that, that open spot, we, we put some green screen. And the idea is, okay, we'll, we'll put the background in digitally, uh, which is doable, but now we'll have to, but now we have the entire entirety of the stage to produce the lighting. And then when we did that, the results improved immediately. 
uh, you got a much better uh, result. So, uh, so there were some other issues to do with um, getting the pipeline calibrated and getting the um, making sure that none of the bits of kit between uh, where you loaded your IBL and where it was on the uh, LEDs had any kind of uh, gamma corrections or boosts or whatever. There's a bunch of stuff yep. going on there. Um, but nevertheless, if you allow for that, now I know that took you an extra time, still, it wasn't a perfect match, even when you did that, right? Because uh, of the thing we were discussing, you know, five, 10 minutes ago, which is the, the color, the gamut, the, the LEDs ability to faithfully reproduce the spectrum. Yep. Before we even in, in get, get, get to that, so basically the first issue was angular coverage. Like you need to have panels, all the places light can come from, and yeah. by the way, everywhere most of the time. Um, the next thing was, was dynamic range. So we found that while having light come from all the right places was, was, uh, was a good thing, we still felt like the color of the key was off, the key to fill ratio was off a bit. And you know, we looked at how these uh, HDRIs were being produced on the panels, and the panels try to have as high dynamic ranges as, as they can. But the way that they got mapped on there, a lot of the light source areas were clipping, particularly like the sky streaming through the windows was clipped. It should have been a blue sky, but it was actually clipped to white. And the um, LED track lighting, the practical lights in the scene, um, which were kind of a warm, LED color like you'll find in interior environments was, was also clipping the way we're displaying it. And so we looked at our HDRI map and figured out how far would we need to bring this down to display it dimmer and dimmer and dimmer in the LED stage so that essentially nothing was going to clip. Yep. And it actually was four stops down. So we brought it four stops down. Now all of a sudden the LED panels, it, it's just much dimmer in the room. A lot of the area of the LED panels are clearly going into their, you know, extended deep dark dynamic range dithering patterns and such. So that would probably uh, not be helpful for getting a good in-camera background. But at this point, the relative, um, you know, colors of, of the different color channels and dynamic range were being reproduced much more faithfully and close to the HDRI. We would actually shoot a validation HDRI inside the LED volume in a way that we could compare it to the HDRI that was originally shot. And we got a pretty close match there. And at that point, things started to look even closer. But uh, like key to fill ratios were, 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 were basically spot on. And it didn't look like, like a computer graphics HDRI lighting uh, result where you used a clipped HDRI map to light your CG scene. That's kind of exactly what it was looking like before on the actors. But then the final thing was that colors were just off. And this is something that we were anticipating and actually hoping we'd get to the point where things with angular coverage and dynamic range were dealt with well enough that this known problem with LED panels and color rendition would actually be the most significant bits of the, of the error signal that we were still seeing. And we did get to that point. I mean, it's a really interesting problem. Um... Because, you know, like you obviously want it to be like you could just plug an IBL in and, and suddenly it's lighting people the way that you naturally want them to be. Um, but as we were discussing earlier, right, you're basically trying to get jumbotrons to behave with the kind of care and, uh, and uh, everything that a light stage was doing. Um, 
And there's one other aspect that you didn't mention in the, the discussion about this that I, I certainly was made aware of. I was interviewing uh, Dito, the guy that invented Dito lights and stuff, and they did LED stuff. And he was discussing something that I know you've paid attention to, which is just when they're building LED walls, they work on a binning principle, which is basically to say that rather than spending a fortune on each individual LED being exactly on spec, you get a whole lot of LEDs and they've got plus or minus variants. It's quite a lot. Um, but on the average, it kind of all kind of works its way out, right? Now, when you're building a light stage, you don't do that. You don't buy the cheap LEDs that on average kind of produce pretty much an average good result. You you build it with precise ones. And there's no reason to do that when you're building jumbotrons. So there's, there's sort of like regional variation that could be quite possibly uh, happening on. Do you think that gets evened out or does it not in an LED volume? Well, um, I, 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 I do believe that that the folks who assemble LED volumes try to get the panels from you know the same production run if they can, and there will be differences. The good news is that with LED panels, they're all calibrated. So if they find you know at, at a pixel level, and this kind of burned in the firmware of each panel, so that um, you know you take pictures of it with a with a camera, and you figure out if this pixel is a little bit reddish, then you don't drive its red LED as bright as you do the other ones until it's nice and, and even. Um, we first started bidding our LEDs to build light stages with light stage uh, six. And you know, even at the time, that was actually built with all white LEDs. And you can get differences in the phosphor that is, is there. And those weren't as dialed in back in 2004, 2005 as, as things are today. Um, but if you actually looked uh, out from light stage six and paid attention, you notice that different LEDs in light stage six were slightly toward pink or slightly toward green. But as you mentioned, you know, in the end for how we were using it, uh, they, it, it would even out, right? You know, you'd, you'd, you'd mostly lighting with enough of them that they would average together and it would be uh, fine. The, the big problem though, is that, you know, optimizing your panels to have a wide color gamut actually makes them worse and worse as light sources. Because wide color gamut means narrow primaries, like spectral spikes spaced far apart in the visible spectrum. And that's the worst stuff to light people with. What you want to light people with is a nice, happy, even you know, lump of illumination across the visible wavelengths. Daylight is our favorite one because we've evolved to like that. And then firelight uh, or, or black body radiation, incandescent light is, is our next most favorite one because that has pretty smooth energy across the spectrum. It just happens to have more in the longer wavelengths and progressively less as you get to the shorter wavelengths. And then you know, crazy things like fluorescence and LEDs have come along and we've had to find various ways of dealing with it. Um, that setup that you were doing the tests in didn't have any uh, illumination from the floor, nor did it have necessarily any objects on the floor that were the same color because of um, you know, the radiant, uh, just light um, bouncing off those surfaces. So do you think that that, you said that you didn't think in your test that the floor was uh, basically a neutral tone made any difference? And I, I guess I'm going to ask the question, if you're guessing, do you think that's like a universal rule of thumb or you just happen to be lucky that you didn't have like a red mat or a green carpet that would otherwise affect things? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very good question, and you know the floor is Im important. In you know we we did put floor lights in our light stage four design that we talked about back yep. in, in two, 
And when we built the, the multi-spectral light stage for sous vide visual effects in 2017, that actually had a, uh, a multi-spectral illuminated floor made of 200 floor panels. So we could program those to get bounce light. Uh, this is the big, uh, the big one you built in Asia. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it does help a bit. Typically, uh, you know, there's more light coming from above than from below. And, uh, you know, this is, these are, you know, lower order bits. I don't think that we got to the point where with the other issues we were dealing with, we could tell the difference between the effective color of the floor uh, in our, in our lighting environments. I do recall that we we were certainly thinking about it as we were shooting our original on location shots and i believe that when we were recording the actors in the shade shade condition uh we should be able to see this in the hri map actually um that there was actually quite a pool they were standing in the shadow of the building but there was a great pool of sunlit light on the ground in front of them and we um you know tried to set the lighting reproduction test up a bit more for success. There was discussion, should we do this or not? And we decided, okay, well, we're only gonna do it one way, we should probably do it this way. And we put black cloth over the um, strong bounce light that we were getting from the ground in the, in the shade scene, because that had a chance to be a dominant form of illumination that we wouldn't be able to reproduce. And, and it wouldn't have been there if they were in front of black asphalt instead of lighter colored concrete. Um, but I think that's, that's important. And light from below is, definitely uh tricky we we uh we, we had some floor led panels uh on loan from from roe for a while um at our google light stage which was also a, a multi-spectral lighting dome uh and we actually put those in the middle of our light stage we stood on top of it and thought, oh it's cool we're getting light from the floor we realized oh there's a problem we don't have any shadows uh casting because real floors are reflective they're not emissive and to address that um, you know, we went, we went outside and we recorded uh, a little, you know, square meter of ground uh, with somebody standing on it, casting shadows on it. And then we made that the texture that we put <laughs> on our e panels. And then if you stood in exactly the right spot, then you would have very convincing shadows uh, on the LED panels. And if you stood anywhere else, it looked weird. Okay. And the next thing I was going to say is this test was completely valid. You, you know, you take a, a point and you sample its light you record all that, you walk into the LED stage and you try putting that on the, <clears throat> the surrounding screens, notwithstanding the points we discussed and, and there you go. But the thing that makes LED volume sexy to filmmakers is the camera moves. And they want the camera to move because an LED stage being a real-time device, maybe using Unreal Engine, is gonna update what's going up on the walls so that it looks like it's moving with parallax. Clearly, this turns it from being a painted psych into a dynamic um, background. This is what filmmakers love, and it certainly makes things really, really believable. So my question then is, what considerations are the fact that your LED uh, volume is just being fed from one point source uh, from the, um, where the original IBL was taken? And I'll add to that, just to clarify, if you were... Uh, if we had Eric here still, he, I'm sure he would explain this, but like on, um, I think Iron Man 3, like one of the things the CGI guys started doing is saying, hey, from my IBL, I'm going to work out where some lights are. I'm going to subtract them out of a notional mathematical sphere and place them as still a high dynamic object, but physically a certain number of, you know, 
digital meters away from, or you know, feet away from uh, where you are, so that if the character that's digital moves to the left or the right, they would get physically closer uh, to a light that was on a C stand three feet away from them, as opposed to a light stand that was, you know, 12 feet away in the way that the inverse square law works. So with that huge setup, what do you think? Yeah, well, we, we designed it so that the actors weren't close to, terribly close to light sources and that the actors were standing relatively close to each other and to the reference objects. Basically trying to, trying to minimize the amount of angular error you'd get on light source uh, positions um, from how it was recorded in the real world and how it was um, reproduced in, in the LED stage. And you know, for the interior environments, you know, the LED stage was larger than the interiors, so uh, light would come from further away, but it still have the right intensity. Like all the inverse square stuff is all taken care of based on you know, just using the same radiance um, over a larger area that's further away versus closer, closer in and smaller. Um, and then for the exterior environments, you know, obviously the, uh, the sky was higher up and the sun was higher yeah. up than the, uh, than the actual LED stage was. And when, when it came to time to replicating the sun, actually, that, that was kind of the most fun that we had. And, and, and Tim Kang helped us with that. It was very good that we'd recorded the sun for real uh, properly in the HDRI, uh, on set. Cause then we could get, um, lighting ratios off of that. And, uh, Tim Kang dialed in that lighting ratio for a solid state phosphor based light source with broad spectrum. And we put on the tallest light stand that we had, um, pushed it up, you know, within, uh, you know, maybe a meter of the led panels so that it was basically covering up the saturated spot uh, where the sun was being displayed on the LED panels, and thus the light came from basically the same direction, uh, and it lit the actors. And, and almost, you know, if you, if, you, if you were to look very closely, you could probably tell that the sun angle was slightly different on the actor on the right than on the left, whereas they would have been identical in the real world with the, the sun being so far away. Um, but, you know, pretty negligible in terms of human perception. Well, but, but hang on, is it though? Because not to sound like I'm contradicting you, but like, the reality is, as you just alluded to, that sun rays are parallel when they're hitting the earth for all intents and purposes. And, and if I'm walking around a large volume that's like, you know, meters across, then I'm certainly not going to have parallel light from a light hanging just underneath the LED ceiling. That's not what I'm getting to. Yeah, that's absolutely going to be the case. Um, so we were lucky because our actors were, were standing six feet apart. Yeah. Uh, again, we shouldn't have had them any closer anyway. Um, and, and six feet when you've got a you know, 25 foot tall volume, uh, that angular change isn't going to trigger huge amounts of human perception that the, that the rays of light are, are off uh, for, for, for that. Um, if the actor needs to move around in the scene and you've like put one light super bright on, then, then, then you're definitely going to have a, a problem. So one of the things that like in our light stage three test, um, we had one scene where we wanted the actor to walk through a virtual model of the Parthenon lit by sun yep. and then, you know, into shadow and the sun as she walks down the colonnade, the shadows of the columns cast shadows on her. And, um, you know, for the, for that, you know, we had the actor just walk in place. We should have had a treadmill, but she did kind of sure. okay. Just so she didn't really have to, to change position, uh, relative to that. And we rendered out a virtual HDRI map moving through the scene. Um, 
So that, that's okay. If you want to spin the actor, we did something where we actually were doing real-time rendering of our HDRI maps into Light Stage 3 according to a rotating platform that the actor was on. And as we push that platform around, it would actually tell the computer that the actor has been rotated and it needs to update the background to match. And that makes it look like the camera is moving around the actor for that camera uh, move. Okay, but now we're introducing a new dimension to the light uh, volume, the um, LED stage that we're talking about, which is like that we don't have a fixed floor, fixed set, and that we're keeping the actors pretty much in the center. Like I've been on sets where we put up a, uh, you know, a hundred K light way off in the other corner of the, um, of the huge soundstage. And the only reason that was, you know, that we're all in huddled in one corner and the way on the other corner is this huge light. And the only reason the DOP did that is that he just wanted as parallel a light source. And that as the actors moved around and did their stuff, that they wouldn't basically have much relative change in distance yeah, to that light. There's an issue there too, where people can get notably brighter because they walk toward yeah. the, the light. Real light wouldn't worry. So, so we're really getting at is, is recreating spatially varying lighting. And yeah. There's, 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 a, there's a couple of things uh, that you know, we've done uh, in, in that or have explored. So if, if you think about you know, just classic image-based lighting for CGI scenes, uh, you know, when, I, when I made the film Rendering with Natural Light in, in 98, it, the, the lighting of the Berkeley Eucalyptus Grove was just projected onto like a huge cube around the objects and then a ground plane so that, you know, when you look down the ground wouldn't seem infinitely far away, it would seem like it's projected onto a ground plane. And that was perfectly fine for lighting this small scene of, you know, little spheres sitting on a pedestal. But for the next IBL movie, uh, Fiat Lux, the idea was to have, you know, spheres and monoliths coming all the way down the whatever 500 feet nave of St. Peter's Basilica, yep. where, um, you know, any given you know light probe wouldn't be accurate for that much length, and I had to completely populate this this uh, uh, basilica. And so for that, the idea was shoot you know light probes as many as you can in the time available, but then project all of that imagery onto a three D model of the scene, so that the light's not emanating from like some large sphere, but it's emanating from the surfaces that the light's actually being generated from. And if you have a, a monolith at the beginning of the nave, it'll get one direction to the light in the center of the name. And if it's at the end of the name, we'll get another direction. And that basically worked out pretty well. And, and Digital Domain did a great job of that for IBL reconstruction of the Benjamin Button scenes to light the digital Benjamin Button head as he got wheeled through and you know, or, or walked through with, with spatially varying lighting, including very nice characterization of the, the, the various lighting instruments that were brought in to light the, 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 the sets uh, for that. Doing that on an LED volume is going to be tough because there's no real way to change the shape of the LED volume uh, at will yeah. to make it seem like, you know, you can't just all of a sudden move a wall in 10 feet because the light's supposed to come from there. I mean, you could, but it's probably too much trouble and it's not exactly what we're trying to go for here with like the correct light at the press of a button for the next scene. So what we proposed for doing this in the SIGGRAPH um, 2002 paper was that actually we shouldn't just be putting lights all around people that just kind of put out isotropic illumination. What we really should be doing is building a light field display device. And the paper said everything should be a video projector, not a light source. 
And if you had a thousand video projectors around people instead of a thousand light sources, now you could produce spatially varying illumination. You could have it so that an actor standing on one side of the stage is lit from directly above because you turn on the video projector directly above them and it just puts a shaft of light that just lights them. And then the other actor standing you know, 20 feet away can be lit with a different video projector that's also directly above them. And since you have you know, angular control out of what comes out of the video projectors, they, they, they wouldn't crosstalk. Um, the other thing that the paper suggested is that as you densify to thinking that somehow you have not just you know, a thousand video projectors, but a million video projectors, or even a video projector every millimeter, you've actually produced a light field display, a completely immersive holographic display system that would be the closest thing to being on the holodeck, because now you could actually reproduce the radiance fields you would see of, of near field objects, of a table that's you know, at arm's length could be displayed on pixels that are 20 feet away and it would look the same way as if it was actually there and it would have the correct stereo it would have the correct parallax and if these were high dynamic range high spectral definition light sources then it would also be exactly the right lighting for that near field scene as well question is that that's going to be impossible for a while so like which pieces of that should we try to put into practice that'll help us produce production solutions that solve the problems we're dealing with. So I guess what I was going to say is that at the moment, we're in a situation that if we, so that's a very, I, I adore our technical chats, as you know, Paul, but if I was a DOP and I'm like, my eyes are glassing over, I'd be like, I'd be saying, well, so what you're really saying is that there's only a particular quality of light that we're able to get at the moment in these LED stages. It just so happens that nice, big, area lights are particularly good lighting tools for DOPs to light actors and actresses, right? I mean, if I was on a set, nothing to do with LED volumes, I could put up some really big area lights and it would make the actress's face look great. So it's not a bad thing that LED volumes are good at producing these large area light diffuse surface stuff because you know that's an attractive thing, but it is only able to really nail, as it were, providing the DOP with a particular uh, quality of light, not any kind of quality of light that they want, which is, of yeah. course, why um, we see this sort of let's shoot dusk, let's shoot um, magic hour type um, productions dominating the stages. Yeah, I, I think you have an excellent point there. And maybe I would, you know, refine it a little bit in that these these LED, generally diffuse lighting can be attractive. It, it, it is relatively pleasing uh, illumination uh, to have. It's not necessarily always the most interesting illumination to have, but it can be True. pleasing. But most importantly, it actually is lighting that has traditionally been kind of difficult to simulate. Like, you know, on a typical <laughs> state, area, like vast areas of darkness and anywhere you want to light, you got to put a light there. So covering things with, you know, nicely controllable, color temperature controllable, diffuse lighting has been hard. So this is like an amazing new, new, new tool to have or new, new crayon to have in your crayon box. Uh, and I think that's, that explains a lot of the, the interest. Uh, but I was at a, 
you know, like a little lighting seminar that um, Caleb Deschanel was leading. And, you know, there was an actor who was hired for the day. There was a bunch of lights. There was a little piece of a set. I think we we're up at the, um, uh, um, you know, like some camera manufacturers, you know, set area. And he was going to like show us how to light somebody. And instantly he went for like the most near fieldy, light fieldy required kind of lighting that you could have. He was sculpting the light to light one part of the face different than the other parts of the face. Um, and like almost treating like every single part of just one actor's body needs to get its own treatment for the illumination. And that's basically impossible to do on one of these LED light stages because of the fact that it's far field illumination, it's not near field illumination. And I think that would be really interesting to try to think about how can we have these kinds of tools produce you know, the kinds of artistic cinematography on actors that, uh, uh, that, that so many of the cinematographers would love to do as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you make a really great point there. There is um, interesting lighting, uh, and then there's sort of like flattering lighting or, or kind of, you know, what's sometimes called book lighting, um, these big area lights, which are, you know, can be really flattering, but, uh, but maybe, as you say, less interesting. I'm, I'm going to ask you this. When we get into that problem, of course, the DOP says, well, that's right. I'll just bring some lights into my, into my LED volume and I'll, you know, put a Dito spot you know, kind of that just pings the hair on exactly where I want it for the backlight. And, but then, of course, we have this problem that we're now introducing extra light into our volume. And I'm wondering if you thought or considered whether it's even feasible to think about having some kind of light sensors that are, um, because you could have a feedback loop, right, where you say, look, there is light being thrown in here that we didn't get from our LED I, IBL, so let's subtract it out so we kind of get back to something closer to where we started. So in other words, I could introduce an additional light and it gets taken out of, so we don't sort of overload our, our uh, overall lighting equation. Uh, yes. And <laughs> um, that's, that, that, that's something that you would want to, uh, you know, certainly any DP who wants to bring in any light to do anything with, you want to accommodate that because they're going to have a good reason for doing so. Um, when we brought in the, you know, the, the bright key light that we had to play the role of the sun uh, in our test that we did, we were maybe we were a little concerned about the fact that it might spill onto the walls and kill the contrast ratio there. But, you know, walls are designed to be pretty low albedo as in not reflect that much of the light. And the light was aimed down at the actors at, and at the floor. And, you know, we could have put barn doors on it to keep it off the walls if we needed to. It didn't seem to be any need for that. But I know there has been interest that if the DP brings in a, a key light, puts it on the actors, it'll light the actors, but it'll probably mostly just get absorbed by the wall. Maybe it'll throw some, um, you know, knock out some of the contrast ratio by producing some bounce. Hopefully that's not too noticeable. But what it certainly won't do is it's not like the wall is going to sense that it's being lit trace those rays back into the unreal scene, do lighting calculations, and then change the unreal scene so that it can then re-radiate out that, that uh, illumination. That's, that's uh, not the default behavior of, uh, of these stages. So um, enabling that kind of thing, th those could be new, new tools to potentially uh, But do, does it have to be that clever? Like surely you could just uh, have patches in the same way that you can have a moving green screen patch that just is a, a knocks out your 
IBL sun because, hey, we don't need the IBL sun into this volume. We need the LED light, which, sorry, the, um, the harsh uh, light on a light stand. And so I'm bringing that in. So I just say, hey, you just turn off the, uh, the sun there because uh, I've already got some major contribution coming from this physical light. So I'm going to have less coming from my walls. That would be a great tool to have. And you've seen on the LED volumes, they usually have a way that whatever is being displayed on them, you can press a button and then put new disks of light of whatever color yeah. and whatever you want everywhere. So that's a way you can start doing that without having to bring in the physical light. And those are lights that the game engine would know about. So if it wants to make the scene react to them in some way, it, it, it could, could do that. In, in the case of our, our sunlight, we actually did have this situation where the uh, HDRI map, uh, had uh, you know the clipped sun being displayed on the ceiling, and that was kind of our guide as to where to put the um, the practical light source. And it never even occurred to us that we should technically Photoshop it out of the HDRI map because that clipped region was producing so vastly small amount of light, uh, such a minuscule small small amount of light compared to the light that we brought in that it, it, it just basically didn't matter. And so maybe reflection of a, in a black ball, you can see there were two suns, but uh, on lighting, I don't think it was a big difference. But it goes further, doesn't it? Because you now, you're talking about like, obviously light spilling onto the LED walls and we, you know, whether or not that sort of dulls it, but let's just be simple and say, I bring in a red light. It's a, um, it's a siren flashing light because I want this red flashing light to go over my actors and it needs to be very close to them because he's standing next to the cop car that has the red flashing light. Well, anything in my unreal volume should also get red flashing light on it. So in fact, my physical light has to be replicated into my, uh, into my solution for my background so that it has it. So in fact, there is this real interesting relationship where sometimes, you know, I introduce a light and I actually expect that to light the background, even though, of course, in reality, it's lighting LED walls that has nothing to do with the content of the background, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And there's two ways you could do that. You could put a virtual cop car in your Unreal scene with a, a spinning red light on it. And then Unreal would be perfectly capable of simulating that red light's appearance um, yeah. in the scene. And the way that you know the the you know an LED stage is, is is typically done is that most of it is to be rendered from the perspective of the actor because it's illumination on the actor, and it's only the front and back that you render from the perspective of the camera, um, which means it's not technically correct for the actor, but it's usually light from behind and it's usually not where the principal light sources are, so it's fine. And um, in the if you put a virtual you know. Uh, police siren and, and, and its light was on, on top there, uh, then that would, spinning red light would actually get displayed, not you know super close to the actor if they're standing two meters away, it gets displayed on the wall. It would look like a huge siren, uh, you know, six meters away from the actor being displayed on the wall, but it would produce the right amount of light on the actor. And if it's optimized for their face, it would be very accurate lighting for the face. It wouldn't have quite the right angle of light down to their waist, down to their feet, but maybe it's just fine. It's just like red flashing light. I don't think we're gonna to be too particular about whether it's within 10 degrees of where it's supposed to come from. Uh, and then that all works. Now, if you wanted to park a real cop car or maybe just put on a stick, a real rotating light, then you'd get more accurate light on the actor 
but you would want to then replicate that in CG and have that spin at the same rate and try to synchronize that. So that might be something that would, would require a little bit of practice and rigging for it, but, it's, but it should be possible. So I should have asked you this at the outset, but I, I want to loop back if I can, um, as we're sort of uh, getting to the end of that, our discussion. I should have said at the outset, we, we started this discussion with the IBL test that you did um, with ECT at uh, USC. But I never asked you, do you think that our IBL standard professional practices for sampling an IBL are adequate? Uh, I mean, is that a solved problem? Do we feel like the IBLs are without criticism in this pipe? Because obviously they're a balance between, you know, the perfect thing that you could do if you had an infinite amount of time on a set and want to get something inside a production environment where you don't want to sort of grind up expensive set to a halt for two hours. But nevertheless, generally speaking, do you think IBLs are a solved thing right now? Um, I, I felt that, you know, you know, this is kind of funny. I had to roll up my sleeves and, and shoot, shoot IBLs for a day for this, uh, this, riot, this riot test. You know, it went, it, went, it went very smoothly. You know, you just have to be ready there with your, your DSLR. It's got the fisheye. It's got the, 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 the click stops for the, the three directions and the, and the, the detents for that. Um, and you know, we've pretty much been shooting HDRI maps that way for you know, almost, almost 20 years at this point. Um, I could imagine it would be nice to have um, a faster way, like if you didn't have to, to turn things in three directions, that would be improved. But you know, in, in practice, then you'd have to run away from the device and then run back to it. And the way that it works right now is that the operator is right behind the camera the, the Canon cameras can shoot those seven exposures in just a couple seconds. So you can be in and out of there in under a minute, even if you need to do the, the neutral density filter and Weta uses like an absolutely excellent neutral density filter for getting the sun um, for this, you, you get the whole thing in under a minute. And, um, you know, it, it, it seems to be kind of what's required to get, you know, an 8K map that has that amount of dynamic range and, uh, and, and that works out. Spectrally, you know, there's a little bit of a worry that as we build multi-spectral light stages, that now you're going to need multi-spectral cameras to shoot all of the instant illumination properties. But the, 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 the paper uh, that we did for SIGGRAPH 2016, uh, which was kind of like the, the lead part of Chloe Legendre's PhD thesis, showed that if you shoot your HDRI map and you just have the appearance of a color chart in the scene, even better, a few color charts aimed in different directions in the scene, um, but even just one color chart that basically tells you everything you need to know about the spectrum of the illuminant, the principal illuminance in the scene. And then you can solve for your multispectral lights, your red, green, blue, amber, cyan, white, or your red, green, blue, white, or red, yellow, green, blue lights, however you want to make them, um, you know, quite directly from the appearance of an HDRI map plus what a color chart should look like in the scene. As long as you know what that color chart looks like, in your LED stage under each one of the spectra of LEDs available there. And that seems totally sufficient. So if we say that we can put a tick on the IBL capture and now move to the LED volume, if you had your like sort of practical two or three top things you'd like to see happen to improve the LED uh, stages so that they are, you know, able to produce more faithful reproduction of color, like what would they be? Because we don't think that the LED volumes are are a solved problem yet. We just feel like we're, we've got a number of issues and we're doing good work, but we're still more work to do. So what would you like to see? Is it 
I don't know, like the pipeline to the screens? Is it the quality of the screens? Is it the quality of the LEDs? Like, where would you like to see some improvements? Uh, I I would love to see LED panels that are have some amount of design consideration to be used as illuminants, to be used as light sources, not as displays. And that will pull the primaries in at least toward the center of the spectrum. So it reduces the color gamut they can display, but it, it makes it so that you get um, not as bad color rendition errors if, if you do have to light with just three primaries. And that um, really, really, really ideally add a fourth channel, add a yellow LED or a broad spectrum white phosphor converted LED. Uh, and then at that point, all of the color rendition errors are, are, are quite small and you're, you're not too worried about them. The light won't just look weird from the moment you step onto the stage. And I think that would be, that would be, that would be great. And then finding a, you know, increasing dynamic range uh, would be fantastic as, as well. Um, so that you can simulate more of these bright light sources that you have in your scenes. Yeah, I think I I think you're absolutely right. And I guess the other one is, as we are doing even here today, like I think it's really important to understand where these LED volumes have strength and where they don't, because I think it's a little, I mean, let's face it, they're quite expensive, like to walk onto an LED uh, volume. Like if you're a producer and you're booking these suckers, like they're not cheap and you have to have a team to run them and you have to have a team to get the assets loaded in them and be, you know, like a production crew. And so knowing where they're good and that sort of educational process of where you're going to get the most uh, creative flexibility and you're not going to be having to fight to get what the DOP and the director want. I think that's the other bit that's super important. It's a little, maybe it's past, but I felt like there was a little bit of a, like, uh, it's all magic and it all works and uh, we don't need to build sets and we <laughs> just do it all on a soundstage. And that's only partially true, I think. Yeah, and I think that's actually, that's important. These are new tools that bring new capabilities and you can do some things in these stages that would be very difficult to do any other way. It's, it's really new capabilities, but we shouldn't oversell these things as a panacea. Um, yeah. That was a big, this um, lighting reproduction test is to you know show kind of the limitations of where we are now and point to the fact that there's, there's still development to do in the future and just have people, you know, have their eyes open about what they can expect to go well and what is still going to remain a challenge that you might have thought had been solved already. We um we've been discussing this in terms of there being this sort of bifurcation of stages. There's the LED stage where effectively you're getting something that people like. Maybe you're making a commercial, right? And you just want lights flickering across the bonnet of the car that's actually in the stage um, because it makes it look more realistic that they're actually driving at night down a street. And if the director is happy with that and the audience enjoys the story with the people driving down the street, then who are we to say that it's not technically accurate, right? Like there's there's loads of not technically accurate lighting in movies that, you know, are spectacularly good movies. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then there's this kind of Cadillac stages where you have a whole different level of color science where they are treating it very much with an eye to, you know, look, it's not obviously a, um, a light field, but they're having a sense of we're going to think of it in terms of a volume of light and we're going to try and do everything we can to get you um, a baseline so that 
if you are, for example, introducing a CG character into the volume, you're going to have the best chance of the renderer's spectral rendering matching the lighting on the actors, matching the CMOS on the lens, matching uh, in the sensor, matching the IBL that took the original stuff. And that Cadillac stuff is quite a big difference from, yeah, it kind of looks good to, wow, you really have to calibrate well and, and have a lot of attention paid to the pipeline. And I think that's, that's another thing, you know, like you can get a stage, but all stages are not equal. Absolutely. So the, the, the original desire for developing, you know, image-based lighting technology for CGI objects was to be able to give people a tool so that if they just want things to look unquestionably real, to just be the right answer, that that was an option. That's something that you could press the button for and you, you would get it. And then if you want to diverge from that or experiment with adding more key or fill or negative fill or whatever, then go ahead, you know, season to taste. But you know, before the, these, the, that kind of technology, it was just, it was, a, it was a struggle on two fronts to try to get things to look believable and then try to things to look artistically desirable for your, your scene. And now it's like, we can just give you believable, the, we can give you the right answer to start with and then deviate as much as you want. And a lot of productions, you know, for most of the effects, like you really do want something that is based on just the right answer. And you, you know, the visual effects industry has been so good at using this technology effectively that we don't worry about whether an inserted object like, you know, um, a, a creature or an Iron Man suit or a vehicle into the scene uh, is going to look problematic, you know, because of the lighting, because we know the answer and we understand the problem. And I think we're going to go through a similar process with uh, LED stages, light stages, where the stuff that we've got now, it kind of heads in the right direction. Under certain circumstances, it gives you the right answer, but you know, people are going to bump up against angular coverage, dynamic range, and color rendition over and over and realize that there's benefits to getting this more right. And so the hardware will get improved, the, the production practices will get improved. And what we'll see uh, is something similar to what we've seen at Weta, where they've gotten so good at their at their image-based lighting that they actually do this down to like every spectral channel that they can do in their renderer. And you know, they're they're not doing this just for amusement. They're doing it because it actually improves the results of what people see on, on screen and filmmakers being able to get to what what they want to see to tell their stories. And I think we're going to see that same process play out over the next five years. Uh, in these LED light stage volumes. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Hope to see you in person, not too far off. Well, thanks, guys, for taking time to discuss that with us. I found the conversation incredibly interesting, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. I think it was a lot of fun. Um, I listened to that on my, once again, my drive back to Mexico, and it really helped pass the time going through some really barren desert landscapes in northern Mexico. So, as always, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the FX Podcast. For my partner, Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.